Hey everybody, welcome to the Wit and Whiskey podcast. Today I've got myself, DJ, and my co-star, Mark. Um, Hello. And our topic today is going to be childhood fandoms. Specifically, Mark, I believe we're talking about uh, our favorite childhood TV shows. Uh, TV shows, video games, sports figures, media franchises, I suppose would be the best way to say it. It's true. Yeah, I definitely found myself, most of my topics were across media, so it turned out pretty interesting. But before we get going on any sort of topics, Mark and I realized we have a couple of retractions to do. Mark, would you like to start with yours? We do. This is probably going to be a unfortunately semi-regular occurrence, at least on my end. Uh, we'll, we'll call this the weekly mea copa. Listening to the recording of our first episode, uh, I had to crack up. When we were talking about our favorite whiskeys, I said the best whiskey I ever had was something called High Times. That doesn't exist. That's a magazine about pot, uh, which is very humorous as that is not one of the many vices I possess. Uh, it's actually High West whiskey, double rye whiskey, not High Times. Uh, I think that was a Freudian slip. I was mixing up High West with Old Times whiskey, which is a very awful uh, whiskey that you get in a plastic gallon jug that we used to consume too much of down the racetrack on Saturday nights. Woof. So High West double rye whiskey is what you want. And to all you stoners out there, go read High Times. Magazines are all hurting. So, you know, support your favorite one. Yeah, right. My retraction uh, happens to be around the worst whiskey that I listed. Uh, last week, I almost caused a row by saying it was <laughs> wild turkey rye. And I do want to correct that and say that in a moment of weakness, I did try a canned Jim Beam and uh, cola. <laughs> um, and that was the worst thing I've ever drank. Uh, it did not do good things to my stomach. I was eating Greek food at the time. It was a bad combination. So I think I can safely say that the worst whiskey I've ever had, while not actually being Jim Beam, uh, I'm sure Jim Beam has some great offerings out there, but it is that 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 canned Jim Beam and cola. Woof, man. And for the record, I did not, you know, send a severed horse's head to DJ's house or anything during the week to get him to retract this. No, no, we definitely have a healthy attitude towards our disagreements on this show. Uh, so I think there's a decent chance of a healthy discussion around why I might be wrong about wild turkey rye later in the in the uh, our podcast episodes. Yeah, I have a bottle of it here at the house, so at some point that will be my whiskey of the week solely to spurn a discussion on that. Um, but uh, that's that's not what I have this week. But uh, what what did you do during the week? Did you have a good week? Uh, yeah, it was a pretty good week. I did a little bit more of my lab experiments here in the Shire. Uh, so this week, uh, I was finally able to bottle my 50-day sour cherry liqueur. Uh, and that is 5-0, folks. Took almost two months to make. Came out pretty good. Um, I, I think I figured out some tricks that I'm going to do next time. And I want a different kind of cherry next time I try it. Mark, I'll definitely get you some next time we can we can see each other. It, oh, please do. Yeah, it's quite a fascinating flavor profile. Uh, comes off a little bit cough syrupy the first sip you get, but it mellows out. It's pretty tasty, and uh, your father would be proud, Mark. The basis oh, is Christian, Christian Brothers. brothers. <laughs> he, the old man does love his Christian Brothers. It's so true. Uh, how about you, Mark? How was your week? It's been good. Um, it is hotter than I'll get all here in Pennsylvania. We, we I think... 
five out of the last six days or five out of the last seven have been over 90 degrees. I love it. I'm the only fat guy in the face of the earth, I think, that hates winter and loves the summer. So bring it on. Hmm. I'm excited. I'm getting back into a uh, hobby, not necessarily from my childhood, but from uh, high school and college. I'm getting back into nitro-powered RC cars. So I ordered some stuff this week, and, you know, everybody becomes a chemist when you're mixing nitro-methane. You know, you got to get your percentages right and things. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, today, actually, we I was at one of our other historic houses. We were doing tours again. First uh, first time since the pandemic. Uh, we had a little bit of a crowd. wasn't wasn't super big, but we had a little bit of a crowd, and we had our masks, and we were keeping you know six feet apart. So it was good uh, good to get back in the game. If you don't use it, you lose it. So yeah, that's totally fair. I'm sure there's some period conversations we can have about historical use of masks in the past. Oh, yes. Uh, it, it was funny because a lady on the tour asked – she made some joke about the pandemic or whatever, and I said, well, you know, if we want to be period, you know, it is 1790, so we don't have a pandemic. We just have nice things like, you know, dysentery and cholera and typhus and all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. All that <laughs> good every stuff. day woven into the fabric of our lives. Yeah, you know, everybody needs a good plague doctor. Mm-hmm. Mark, before we get into our uh, glorious topic, I think there's going to be quite a few good conversations today. Uh, what are you drinking? I am drinking uh, probably one of my go-tos. It's uh, nothing super fancy, although it is technically another small batch hipster rye. I am drinking some Bullet 95. Ooh. And of course, don't forget the I in Bullet there. It's B-U-L-L-E-I-T. It's... Uh, the 95 is not actually the proof. It's only 90 proof, but it is 95% rye. That's where the 95 comes, and then the other five is, you know, your mash and your blend and everything else. Wow. Uh, it's fairly cheap. It's only like $32 a bottle here, and that's with the ungodly whiskey tax in Pennsylvania. Um, fun fact, everyone, uh, if you live in Pennsylvania and you drink any type of whiskey, bourbon, scotch, etc., you are paying higher taxes than a vodka or tequila or gin drinker. Because after the Jonestown flood of 1936, they imposed a whiskey tax in this state that was going to be repealed once they had paid for the repairs for the flood. Well, here we are, what, 110 years later, 112 years later, and uh, it's still on the books. So, yeah, we have that going for us, uh, but it's fairly cheap, all things considered. It's uh, Some people list it as a full flavor, full-bodied rye. I don't know if it's maybe, you know, my palate is not as developed. I think it's more medium, maybe a medium too full kind of thing. But it's got a little spice to it. You can pick up some cinnamon. You can pick up some cocoa. You can pick up some of the earthy tones. And then it hits you with that oak uh, at the end. It's, it's a small batch and oak casks. And you get that little bit of smoke right at the end. And it mellows out. And it's real nice. That's awesome, Mark. Yeah, I'm going to have to add that to my list. That sounds pretty tasty. Uh, this is another one that our good friend Lou Q got me on. This is Lou's uh, everyday rye. Lou, Lou likes uh, the bullet. And he got me hooked on it. So. We'll have to shout see. out to Lou. We love you. Yeah, we love you, Lou. We'll have to see if we can get him in for one of these episodes. I'm sure he's got a wealth of knowledge that he can share. Oh, yes. So what about you there, DJ? What are you drinking this week? Well, I pulled out a company not to be named as they are not sponsoring our podcast as of yet. <laughs> uh, I signed up for a a uh, whiskey connoisseur subscription last year and got a bunch of these like whiskey tasting vials. and 
at the end of the year, into January, I was able to snag one of their last advent calendars kind of after Christmas for um, a pretty affordable price. And there were <laughs> 20 different vials in there, various things. And I kind of went through the lower numbers on the calendar until I found something that wasn't a scotch. Uh, we'll talk about my uh, not so wonderful experience with scotch, I'm sure, in the future. But I found uh, Brecken Ridge. Uh, it's a PX Sherry Cask Finish bourbon. Okay. And it's got, there's definitely like notes of of some caramel. Um, and there's like a little bit of a, a citrus overtone to it. Uh, it's got like a, a really nice weight to it. It's quite darker than what I drank last week. I did remember my whiskey stones this week, so um, that's my boy. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's mellowing nicely in the palate, and it's definitely got that, that that kind of backbone of like a dry sherry. Just straight up on whiskey stones, it's really nice. It doesn't have the heavy spice overtones of the rye I was drinking last week, which is kind of nice. I like a more um, mellow flavor profile. So yeah, I definitely recommend it. Breckenridge uh, Sherry Cask Finish Bourbon. I'm going to definitely write that one down. I'm going to have to look that one up. Yeah, I do not know what it costs in stores because this was a, a tasting box that I got for a pretty, pretty affordable price. Um, but I'll do some research and come back next week with what the prices are around here in New Hampshire. At some point, Mark, we should definitely talk about the differences between uh, like liquor stores in New Hampshire and liquor stores in Pennsylvania because that'll be pretty fascinating. Yeah, because I think they may be the only two states that still have monopolies. Yeah. I'll, I have to do a little bit more research on that. There might be one or two others, but uh, whenever you read about stories about state-run uh, liquor monopolies online, the two examples they always give are Pennsylvania and New Hampshire. So that could be a fun episode. Yeah, I would be fascinated. Um, and it would be very interesting to compare it to Massachusetts because I'm sure we would find uh, some <laughs> Vast differences. Uh, for anybody who's listening and doesn't know, we up here in New Hampshire get a lot of people from Mass coming to our liquor stores for um, a number of reasons. I'm sure there's some tax thing that I can't really speak to. I'm not a historian. Well, I mean, I just know, I don't know the specifics, uh, but when I was living in Massachusetts, we would make the run over the border just because whether it be taxes or whether it be supply and demand. But for your good stuff, the prices were – it was a big difference. I mean we you know, we would pile into loose Saturn, and that was good on gas. So even making the run to the border and coming back, uh, you'd still be in the black depending on what you bought. So Nice. There, there's definitely something going on. Yeah, totally fair. So that kind of brings us to uh, our topic this week, our uh, childhood fandoms. And I – I got to be honest, Mark, there were too many to count. I don't know if you had this problem when we were sorting out which ones we were going to cover, but I watched a lot of Saturday morning cartoons, played a lot of video games, and I I was a huge Disney kid growing up. So trying to narrow it down to some of my, uh, to a very few number that we could talk about one episode uh, was quite difficult. It was. My criteria was I went with the carny way. I, I said, what do I still mark out for today? If, you know, if something comes on the TV or if there's a movie or if, you know, there's an appearance or something, what is going to make me even today in my mid-30s drop everything I'm doing and go? Yeah, totally fair. 
and I I did something of the same. One of mine hasn't quite stood the, stood the test of time, but um, we'll, we'll be getting into that. Uh, do you want to start with your, your first topic? We'll maybe volley this back and forth, Mark. Yeah, I was going to actually say, you know, I know in the, the format I, I had us, you know, all, I'll go and then I'll go. But um, no, I think we'll, we'll volley back and forth. And uh, my first is my first love and uh, still still probably one of the biggest influences on me uh, in terms of motorsports and in terms of hobby. And that was Bigfoot. And no, before you change the channel, this didn't turn into a cryptid podcast. <laughs> We're not talking about the big furry man. We're talking about the monster truck, the monster truck, the original monster truck. Bigfoot literally was the one that started it all. Bigfoot one, the original was a 74 F250. It was a big Ford. And that was what was cool about it was it was an actual truck. It was all steel. It uh, had a cab. The motor was in the front and uh, it was owned by Bob Chandler who gave it its name because he was driving it originally and he had a heavy foot and they just started hopping it up. There, there was the Holy Trinity. There was Bob Chandler. There was Jim Cramer who became the driver later on. And then there was Alan Ruth, who was the engine builder who actually weirdly enough is friends with the old man, which is a whole nother sidetrack we can get off on. But it started out around the St. Louis area. Uh, he just kept hopping it up and hopping it up. And uh, Bob Chandler, then he started his own shop because he couldn't get parts in. He couldn't get the parts and he couldn't get the modifications in for the truck that he wanted to do. So he made his own shop, Midwest Four Wheel Drive, and he started making his own. And the biggest one, the one that he got the patent for, was four wheel steering. Oh, wow. So you often see on the old Bigfoot ads, it says Bigfoot four by four by four. Four wheels driven, four wheel steering, which if you go to a Monster Jam show today or a county fair or anywhere there's a monster truck, every single one of them has four wheel steer because uh, of uh, Bob Chandler. So what, it, then, what is that? What does four wheel steering mean for those of us playing the home game? Oh, yes. Uh, I'm being too technical. Uh, basically, the rear tires steer the same way. Well, not the same way, but they steer just like the front tires. Oh. And usually you'll have two. Uh, sets of controls you obviously have your steering wheel for the front tires and oftentimes you'll have a little crank or a little yoke hidden under the dash to control the rear tires and it allows these literally monster trucks to cut their turning circle in half uh, to do donuts and different things like that it also helps with the illusion uh, monster trucks are a lot like professional wrestling there's a lot of kayfabe there's a lot of man behind the curtain so you'll oftentimes see at a show, a driver will start doing donuts, will pop the removable steering wheel out, will hold the steering wheel out of the truck, wave to the crowd. I don't want to break the magic, but he's steering with the back tires. <laughs> he's, he still has control. I, I, you know, it's so you don't want to give away all the secrets. Uh, but that all started in 1979, 1980. And then all the first kept coming. Uh, Bigfoot was the first truck ever to crush cars, which they don't even really do much anymore because of the recycling and the environmental concerns. Oh, so but that was 1981. Uh, 1983, the first televised monster truck race was against uh, the Truck USA one, which was sort of the Chevy Bigfoot. They were the big rivals. Uh, that was 1983. 1982 uh, was the first time a monster truck was on 66-inch tires, which is still the standard that they run today, the huge ones. Uh, and it also unfortunately started the trend of duplicates. Bob Chandler was getting so many uh, offers to appear and to crush cars 
and to make money. So he made the second Bigfoot. And that's why today, uh, last I checked, I think there was just around 30 grave diggers that are yeah. touring the country. <laughs> and that all started, you know, in the 80s. Uh, the very first Monster Truck World Championship was 1988. It was won by Bigfoot. And then they took a year off for research and development. And they came up with what eventually was called Bigfoot 8. And this was the first modern monster truck. It was uh, designed uh, completely in a CAD, computer-aided designed uh, lab. So basically it was designed on a computer. It was fully tube-framed, so it wasn't a truck anymore. It had a big roll cage-style frame uh, like a modern stock car, for those of you at home, like a NASCAR. Uh, the engine was now in the back. It wasn't in the front. And then they just molded a fiberglass body around it. Uh, and this is the way every single monster truck since, even the ones today, are still built. That's uh, that was 1989. Uh, 1990, they came out with nitrogen suspension, uh, which, again, still the same thing. First fully 3D body was Snakebite, which was another Bigfoot with just a snake body on it. And then they did that was when they started to come out with the whole cave fade thing, because races are predetermined don't want to ruin the magic but a lot of it is fixed i mean it sounds uh, a little bit like professional wrestling to me my it, friend. it is but you know you don't want to tear your trucks up too bad uh i remember i went to a show at the arena by my house and they had an odd number of trucks that night so they announced that the fastest loser in the race would advance to the second round and Gravedigger advanced to the second round, even though he had a DNF. He, he, he hurt the motor and didn't even start the race. <laughs> but he was the fastest loser because, you know, the kids paid to see Gravedigger. And damn it, they're going to see Gravedigger. <laughs> oh, man. I remember being a product of the 90s. I remember being obsessed with Bigfoot and Gravedigger when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. They were everywhere. You wouldn't think that a monster truck, but I was just going through what I had. I had the big wheel, the uh, Bigfoot power wheels that you actually sat in and you drove. Mm -hmm. I had the video game. There was an NES video game. Worst control scheme ever recorded to any video game. Um, but I had that. I had the uh, pullback wind-up Bigfoot that went, and it actually came with a little hot dog stand. And the hot dog stand was actually a mold. And you put tinfoil in the mold, and it made cars to crush. That's amazing. You know, I, I had all this crap. And uh, if you don't want to take my word for it, because I am running a little long, Hot Rod Magazine had an issue out uh, for the year 2000. It was the 100 most influential hot rods of all time in automotive history. Bigfoot was number 69. Nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, he really was. He was number 69. If you could pick that issue up, he's in it. Amazing. But I can mark out on Bigfoot all day. But you, you go. All right. All right. So I had a, I had a hard time with this. And I'm going to uh, – I'm going to list my first one, but the stipulation here is my ultimate childhood fandom was Pokemon. I'm not allowed to talk about that until it gets its own episode. We, Mark and I discussed yes. this. We, so, we, we've agreed on this because this is going to go much longer than the little bit of time we have here if we do Pokemon. Exactly, exactly. So I went with my first fandom, my oldest fandom, my first true love, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Ah, one that we share a deep love on. Yeah, you know, as we kind of stated in the last episode, uh, Mark and I have a few very strong common threads. Um, and in this list that we came up with and kind of split together, uh, I chose one that we both mutually love, and Mark chose one that he'll talk about later that we both mutually love. Um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had a huge impact on me as a kid. 
And I only recently in like the last few years realized that the whole franchise was created and launched in December of 1987, the year I was born in Dover, New Hampshire, which was the city I was born in and grew up in. It was extremely local for me. It was a countrywide fandom. Uh, Everybody got into it. It it crossed. I I mean, uh, everybody remembers the original uh, animated TV show, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Everyone remembers the the live action movies. Mm-hmm. There were uh, action figures. It was one of the biggest action figure campaigns, uh, one of the most popular action figure campaigns. I still have uh, all of my original turtles. They are not in their original like packaging, but um, Ditto. yeah, no, I I definitely played with my turtles, and I used to collect all the cool ones, you know, Baxter Stockman. And, and, uh, I had like three different variations of shredder and now, so I don't want to cut you off, but yeah. I have to ask you a question. Cause it still stings for me. Fair. Even now, God, 20, 25 years later, 30 years later, did you have the technodrome? I did. I had the, technodrome. Oh, you bastard. Uh, <laughs> I had the technodrome. I had the, uh, the sore hideout. I had that. Um, I had the sewer hideout. My parents instantly took away the the ooze uh, because I <laughs> would have gotten it everywhere. Um, I did have the technodrome. I don't know what happened to it. I don't. I'm I definitely just, don't have it today. I, I'm still bitter. Uh, my parents. I was an only child. I was spoiled. I'll be the first to admit it. And my parents got me pretty much whatever I wanted. And of the original series of turtles. Uh, the action figures, I had every single one except for the generic foot soldier. Yep. And I had the turtle van and I had the sewer hideout, but they would not buy me the Technodrome. It was just too big and too expensive and they refused. And here I am, you know, in my mid thirties and that still stings. You know, that's hilarious <laughs> uh, because there were, I feel like there were three big play sets with the original launch of the action figures, the Technodrome, the sewer hideout and the, the, the turtle bus. And the yep. turtle bus was the one that I wanted and never got. <laughs> no, I got that. I, I had the turtle bus because it was a car, you know, so the old man bought it. It was. For me. Anything yeah. car related, the old man bought it for me. I, I had like a transforming motorcycle at one point that was pretty cool. I'm sure it's still in, in my, my turtle box in the basement. But okay, so the OG cartoon ran from 87 to 96, which solidly yep. puts it at the point when I was like, old enough for Saturday morning cartoons. You know, I, I kind of came in halfway through its tenure. Uh, the live action movies were all made between 1990 and 1993. So Mark, I don't, you're older than I am, right? I am slightly. Yes. Yeah. So that kind of puts it for us in our, like still in our elementary school years. Um, and, uh, my dad and I used to watch them all the time. Like there were a series of movies that my dad and I would all watch together and they were all trinities, right? Like star Wars, um, <laughs> Indiana Jones, back to the future and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies were all on the table. And back then my first, uh, I mean, you remember cassette tapes, right? Oh God. Yeah. That's all my monster. I had every monster truck tape, every Bigfoot tape there was, I had right. My first cassette tape was a live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles concert come called Coming Out of Their Shells. I had that tape. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I might still have a copy of it somewhere in a box. Um, and I mean, 
it was ridiculous and super 90s. Didn't and they do a tour? They did. It was the coming out of their shells tour. They paired up with Pizza Hut for for ridiculous reasons. I think I went to a concert. Now that you mention that, I think my old man actually took me. They came to a small theater by us, and I think he got me tickets. Right? <laughs> so good. So originally, TMNT was created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird in Dover uh, as part of Mirage Comics. It's gone on to have a lot of different flavors. Uh, it has the original run of the comics, uh, which are you know a very specific art style. There and good luck finding an original. Yeah, right. Uh, it's, it's that stuff is hard. There was a, another comic artist around the same time named Stan Sakai. I don't know if you ever read any any of uh, Usagi Ojimbo. I have not. I only recently found out about Usagi Ojimbo, and as dear listeners, you will find out. I am sure over the course of this podcast, uh, I have a deep and uh, abiding love for all bunny rabbits. And uh, <laughs> Mark is laughing because he he knows about this. We'll get into this when we talk about D&D. Usagi Yojimbo is a uh, anthropomorphic bunny rabbit samurai who has had many interactions with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles over the years, uh, which I only recently found out in like the last five years and started buying up. Uh, the crossovers and stuff. It's amazing. And this is a uh, fandom that it has stood this, the test of time. There's been a number of animated series over the years. And as recently as 2011 up to the present, new comic series ha- uh, have been started. Uh, IDW has a uh, huge comic run of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started back in 2011. So if anybody's looking for a comic recommendation, some of the best plot lines ever written. Yeah, um, they're really good. Yeah, they, I, I've been lucky enough to read a couple of them. They're really good. Yeah, yeah. And there's some really great crossovers. There's about to be, uh, so I'll leave it off with this. There's about to be a new Turtles comic that is, uh, I, I don't know if it's like a future verse sort of thing or what what if sort of thing, but it's coming out this year. It's called The Last Ronin. And it's rumored that both Eastman and Laird are coming back together for the first time since the original series uh, to create The Last Ronin. I can believe that because I don't know if you watch on Netflix – shameless plug, we're not getting paid for this, but it's a great show. Uh, If you don't watch on Netflix, watch The Toys That Made Us. Oh, yes. Uh, And and they did an episode on uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, I pretty much teared up and cried like a little girl throughout the whole thing because it was just my childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Eastman and Laird actually got back together at the end and they were in the same room and they were talking and they were civil and they were doodling. So I can absolutely believe that. Yeah. It's supposed to be really great. It's, I mean, the whole premise of last run and I just talked to my comic book shop about it um, is all but one of the four turtles dies. And it's what and go on. The next. best part of the gimmick is well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who we've been discussing who the best turtle to be in that situation would be. Well, but no, I, but see, that's the thing. To me, that's the best gimmick. We don't know is. who it is. It's so true. Yeah, we don't know. Um, so before we get to your next topic, uh, Mark, who is the best turtle? Well, I, I, you know, my favorite still to this day and every year to this day, my mother, uh, she's done it every year. 
for 34 years now, and this year I'll probably be 35, uh, she gives me a, a piece of paraphernalia related to the greatest hurdle, Leonardo. Ugh. I uh, wholeheartedly disagree. <laughs> uh, best hurdle is Michelangelo for all the reasons. Now, I have to throw a caveat out there. Leonardo was my favorite as a kid because he was the leader and he was strong and, you know, and he had dual katanas and his other brothers kind of looked up to him most of the time. So I really liked that. But now that I'm an adult, I relate to Raphael so much more. (laughs) I think I relate the most to Donatello, but I love Mikey so much. And if you... If you read a lot of the plots in the comic, you watch the TV show, you watch the movies, Michelangelo is what keeps them together. Yes. He is the glue of the turtles, no it question. Is. Yeah, and I, I, I've had many a deep conversation about this, but we should get to your next topic. My next topic is uh, another one that we both love, being that you know I grew up in a household where my father was actually crewing on a touring professional race car. I love speed, so it should be no surprise that the next one is Sonic the Hedgehog. <sighs> Near and dear. Now we're gonna get. I'm gonna throw out a trigger warning here. I'm gonna be throwing a lot of hot takes in very quick succession on this one. Okay, fair. So you all buckle up because it's going to get bumpy. And here's the first one. Uh, As we will discuss going forward, I have been pretty much a Nintendo whore my entire life. Uh, There's only one Nintendo system I don't own, much to DJ's annoying. (sighs) Mark, get a goddamn Switch. (laughs) See? But despite my fandom... I still, to this day, fully believe the Genesis kicked the Super Nintendo's ass. I know the sales numbers say otherwise. I know the fandoms say otherwise. But I had both as a kid, because I was spoiled. And I enjoyed my Genesis so much more. I played my Genesis so much more. I can't really fight you. I had both. I loved both. And a lot of that had to do with Sega's new mascot. Of course, he debuted in 1991, and the whole idea was to have somebody to compete with Mario because their first mascot failed miserably. Do you remember who Sega's first mascot was? Not even a little bit. Alex Kidd. No. Yeah, Google, Google him. If you're, if, you're, if you're younger than us, just Google Alex Kidd, and it's – no, the games went good. Um, and it originally was a result of a tech demo. When they were building the Genesis, they had a the ability to program a sprite to go very fast but follow – a linear path no matter what they set it to do. So that's why you had the corkscrew loops and the big loop-de-loops and all this stuff was they originally had a big blue sprite uh, as a programming demo, as a tech demo, and that's what became Sonic the Hedgehog. Amazing. Uh, Weirdly enough, this is something I didn't know, but the original Sonic the Hedgehog came out on the Genesis first and then was ported to the Sega Master System. Because both were actually out at the same time. But the Genesis version is the original version. That's amazing. You're talking Uh, Sonic 1, right? Yes, Sonic 1. No Tails, no Spin Dash, no nothing. Three acts uh, per level. Very, very difficult. It uh, was. But very addictive. Yeah, it should be noted this is the the Mark topic that is near and dear to my heart. (laughs) Yes. Then, of course, you know, the hits just kept coming. You had Sonic 2, which right now, uh, if you're our age... 
the music from the second world, the chemical plant is playing in your head. Mm-hmm. Don't don't lie. Don't fight it. It is. Uh, you had Sonic 3 and then Sonic and Knuckles, which I believe I would have to double check. No, that's a lie. It's the second. I was going to say, I believe that was the first game that I ever completed 100%, but that's a lie. The original Super Mario Brothers was, although it was around the same time because I was, I had many systems, so I was still playing many games. Fair. Uh, and that was an example of being Christmas rushed, uh, being a good thing. Sega wanted a game and they wanted it on their date and Sonic team said, well, hey, you're going to get half the game and we're going to release half the game later. And here we are. Uh, Sonic Spinball sucked. Here's my <laughs> other hot take. You know what's the most, single most underrated Sonic game of all time? Which one? The Mean Bean Machine. Uh, it's it's such a weird game, and I, di- I didn't come to it until I was in my teens. But now yeah, remember, it's good. Underrated does not mean great. And overrated does not mean something's bad. We're going to be doing a lot of these going forward, too. But that to me, that's the single most underrated game. Love it. Uh, and see, then you ran into the problem, and this is my second hot take. And I love the franchise, and there's two exceptions to this rule, which we're going to talk about. But Sonic in 3D sucks. I'm going to pause to allow DJ to catch his breath and offer a rebuttal. <laughs> I mean, you know what my rebuttal is going to be. Sonic. And I know, and that's one battle. of the two exceptions. Yes, that's <laughs> one of the, that, that is the biggest exception. But it started off with Sonic 3D Blast for the Genesis. Did you ever play that? I did, and my hot take is that I weirdly loved it. All right. I I, I did. I remember being younger. That was one of the games I got later. I think I had already moved on to the Saturn. And, of course, there was no uh, Sonic game for the Saturn. There was Sonic Racers, I know, but there was no proper Sonic game. They released Sonic Jam, which was just basically every single... Uh, Sonic game, which you you have a copy of that. Who oh boy, you're sitting on a gold mine. I never got mine. the point of Sonic Racers. Like the dude's already fast. Why does he need a car? It was while well, they were trying to compete with Mario Kart. But you're right, in kayfabe, it made no sense. Yeah. Uh, but because there was no proper Sonic game, that was one of the reasons it killed the Saturn. I have a feeling at some point we're going to do a whole episode on the Saturn because that to me is the ultimate case of missed potential, missed opportunity. Fair. Uh, just the system in general. Uh, but that was one of the many reasons the Saturn died. So I came onto Sonic 3D Blast much later and was like, you're collecting birds. What, What's going on? Oh, so good, though. And they would follow you around. Now, before we move on to the full jump to 3D, the cartoons, and of course there were two of them, were phenomenal. They were. They were both amazing. But you get to the problem, and this is... They were both amazing. The comics were amazing. Um, but you get to the main problem you have with Sonic and that you have the Sonic to this day. They can't decide what's canon and what's not canon. The canon for Sonic is so messed up. Yeah, it is. Because you have it's broken. books. It's horribly broken. You, you have book books. You have comic books. You have television shows. You have animes. You have various video games, and I couldn't tell you what's canon and what isn't canon. So this is one of the things that I make up. Now, one thing that I know is canon, and I went and looked up the actual date when it was confirmed by Sega of Japan as being canon, and this is something that I still get mad about to this day. He's not Eggman, people. 
<laughs> He's Dr. Ivo Robotnik. I don't mean, know why I have to get upset about this. I mean, the whole thing, though, came in because Sonic... It's like, his nickname. Yeah, it's like his Sonic nickname. made fun of him. Yes, and that's fine. But his actual name is Dr. Robotnik. Now, if you want to call him Dr. Ivo Eggman, in quotation marks, Robotnik, okay, I have no problem with that. If you want to do what they did in the movie and have Sonic throw it at him as a slur... That's fine. But to just list him on a character sheet as Dr. Eggman is something that really pisses me off. <laughs> I don't know why, but it does. Fair. But anyway, we'll get to the jump to 3D. Sonic Adventure 1, very good. Sonic Adventure 2 Battle, probably one of the greatest games of all time. It's the, like, no matter how much you and I disagree, we always come back to this game. Yes. This, this is our meeting point. <laughs> no matter how, if DJ and I have a heated disagreement on something and we're annoyed with each other, someone will throw out a reference to Sonic Adventure 2, and that is how we come back together. It, it is just an just absolute so good. good. Drop copies of it in Israel. You will solve the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Right oh my god, it's so good. And then after that, they all sucked. Every um, single one. Can we... Can we talk about Shadow the Hedgehog? No. We're not talking about Shadow the Hedgehog. Can we talk and... about Linkin Park, the game? No. We can't talk about the game where Sonic's a werewolf. No. <laughs> I will throw out a caveat. There was one fun game. I'm not saying it's a good game. I'm saying it was a fun game. And that was Sonic Forces. And the reason why I say it was fun was it played with the ideas of the television show. Yeah. You were Resistance, you were fighting Robotnik, you had different animal friends. So it kind of toyed with that. You didn't have any of the characters from the TV show, which is a shame because they were all awesome. But it toyed with the idea a little bit. So I enjoyed it. I wouldn't have bought it. I got it as one of the free games on, the, on PlayStation Plus. I wouldn't have paid money for it. It wasn't that good. But for what it was, it was enjoyable. Fair. And lastly, the movie gave me hope. I, I, we are, you and I are a similar age. We have sat through numerous video game movies. Yeah, let's and, never talk about the Street Fighter movies. Let's never talk about the Street Fighter movies. Let's never talk about the Super Mario Brothers movie. Um, let's Oof. not talk about the Dead or Alive movie. Let's not talk about the Postal movie, the Blood Rain movie. Uh, I can go on and on and on. There was only two prior to this movies that, again, were fun. They weren't good. They weren't award-winning pieces of film, but they were fun. And those were the Mortal Kombat movies. And <sighs> do you, well, do you know why they were fun? I, go ahead. I they they I, followed the plot of the games. Yeah, it's fair. This is a franchise mark and I don't agree on. I don't care <laughs> for it. Uh I wish I did, but ugh. Now again, I'm not st standing here and saying you should run out right now and look up the movies. I think they were on, on Netflix. They were prior to the pandemic. You're going to be disappointed. They're not great action movies. They're not great kung fu movies, but they actually followed the plot of the game. 
which no movie before, video game movie before, or no movie video game since did. Then you got the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. All the references, all the callbacks, all the... I, I, I was six again. I was seven again. I was losing my ever-loving mind. The, the wife had to calm me down a few times. The movie was amazing. Um, ben Schwartz's Sonic was Perfect. a revelation. Perfect. Uh, yeah, no, it it was so well done. It was a weird, like, weirdly good buddy cop movie that I didn't expect. And yes. it felt it felt a little bit like some of the old cartoons. Oh, it absolutely felt like the old cartoons. It absolutely felt like the old uh, – you're my age, so do you remember the Scholastic Book Fairs? I do. Um, I would often buy – they had these very short – they were like 100 to 120-page uh, novels that were Sonic the Hedgehog, and they were based off the characters from the television show. I had a ton of those. It felt like one of those. And hey, I'll just end on this. April 2022, that's when the new one's coming out. I can't wait. It's Neither can be I. so good. Well, ladies and gents, I think that is a good place for us to split, because unfortunately, uh, being a historian that I am, I do tend to rattle on a little bit, and I think I've burned through most of our time this week. We do want you to... We want these to be chunks that you'll actually listen to. Nobody wants, you know, a three-hour podcast. So I think we're going to break this up into two episodes. So tune in next week for part two of our childhood in whiskey, where uh, DJ is going to be taking most of the mantle. So if you don't like me, and I'm sure many of you don't, you'll have <laughs> less of me next week. Uh, and so please like, subscribe, follow, do all the uh, wonderful internet things that the kids do these days. And a big thank you for uh, our intro and outro music from Nuno Henry Silva. He's a wonderful composer, so I'm sure you've checked that out. We're going to put his... Uh, notes for his SoundCloud, the link and everything in the uh, show notes, aren't we, DJ? Yes, yes. I'll uh, I'll get some links together and the uh, the great tracks he he is letting us use um, are on release albums on SoundCloud. So I'll make sure to include a few links for everyone. Yes, so we'll do that. So definitely go over there and support him uh, because he is supporting us, and we're very grateful for that. So until next week, uh, ladies and gentlemen, salut and cheers.